Welcome to a podcast of epic proportions. Here we cover software, technology, developer problems, and solutions. We'll feature great guests and cover technologies that are changing the world. From episode to episode, we'll keep you glued to your headphones and speakers. So stay tuned to the Yellow Duck Podcast. I'm here today with Joe Jevnik. Uh, we are going to be talking about a lot of things today, especially uh, software development uh, from the perspective of perhaps Python developer and other languages. Uh, Joe, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, and I know you're over there. It's nine in the morning where you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Over here, it's about three in the afternoon. So there is a time difference, uh, but it's, uh, you know, they, we're in the global age of the internet. So it's, it's fine. Uh, okay. So first of all, uh, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, we always appreciate, uh, you know, I'm trying to get uh, all kinds of different uh, guests on here. And uh, we've had a lot of people that have had like, you know, 20 years of professional corporate experience and stuff. And I know you're like a younger guy. So like, I thought it'd be kind of cool to have uh, have you on here to get a, a different perspective. And, uh, you know, maybe you're not so jaded yet. <laughs> yeah. um, so the first question I, I sent you, because I sent you this list of questions, just kind of get you kind of get you an idea of what we're talking about. But the first one is like, what, what age did you start programming? The reason I'm asking that is because so many developers have these stories of where they were like seven and they wrote their own operating system. So what is your story for starting programming? Yeah, so when um when I was 16, I think, uh, in high school, I took a class on computer science. And uh, since then, I've just kind of been programming nonstop. Uh, yeah, it was just something that my school offered, and I thought it looked cool, and so I gave it a shot. And uh, which, uh, which language? What was the first language? Uh, that was in Java, actually. Which, uh, and how did you find the experience of learning, uh, you know, of using Java as your first language? So at the time, I, I really didn't have anything to compare it to, right? Um, I mean, I had I had seen other programming languages, but I never really used them. So um, at the time, it was just like the most magical thing. Like, I can tell the computer what to do, and it's going to do it. So uh, the ability to write anything at all was still really cool, and I didn't really know how to compare that. Um Kind of quickly, though, I felt like it was um, hard to like write stuff quickly. Like I didn't understand software engineering principles, and Java is definitely a language that's built around like designing larger projects. Um, so some friends recommended other languages that helped me like branch out and try new things, which I think is what really got me um, like rooted in programming, where instead of just like, oh, this is cool, like, made me really love it. Okay, great. All right. And, of course, we've heard a lot about uh, everybody, you know, from, uh, from, from governors of states to maybe even presidents uh, trying to learn uh, coding, or they call it coding because they're talking about, like, very elementary software development or not even software development, just writing some sort of uh, simple script. What do you think about this idea that uh, everyone should learn programming or, if not everyone, who should learn programming? Yeah, so I, I see some merit in the statement what, what i don't think is that like everyone needs to be a software engineer right like not everyone needs to be building like robust software systems and like know everything about programming i i do think that people should understand like how to use a computer to accomplish computational tasks like even if that just means writing you know an excel script or or a macro or function um, or like writing a simple task with a computer uh, because it's really useful for general stuff. So 
I, I see the that like people should understand how computers can solve problems, but not necessarily that everyone needs to be a software engineer. Okay, definitely. Good. Um, all right. And as far as I, I always thought about this is kind of interesting because, uh, you know, here at DevSkill, we do like skills assessment of developers. We try to figure out how, how developers are able to kind of prove their abilities in like a limited amount of time. So this kind of connects to that. But it's like, is there um, a life skill or some non-software development ability or attribute of a person that correlates with uh, software development uh, capabilities or potential? Uh, I think the most important thing um I don't know if this is like cliche is like self-confidence. Um, one of like important thresholds, I think when you're learning programming is you start by asking like, can you do this? Like, is this possible? Is, is, can I write this code? And I think something that I came to realize was the answer is just yes. Like you can write any kind of code. The computer can do anything that you can think of. You, you end up needing to ask like, how do I do it? Or like what, do I need to learn to do that? So just having the confidence in yourself that you can solve any problem, you just need to figure out how to solve the problem. The question isn't, can it be solved? It's how it, how can it be solved? All right, great. So that'll, I'm sure that'll inspire a lot of people out there that, that wanna, wanna learn um, how to at least write some simple programs, how to automate some things. I think also, I mean, I'm a person who's, I've been, you know, I've been kind of, I, I would say, I would use the term, you know, playing around with Python for, for like a decade. Uh, I've never used it really professionally to build some, you know, giant, web application or something, but I've, I've tried to apply it anywhere I'm working uh, to just make my job easier because there's so many things that are, you know, just mundane and like, why am I doing this manually? So I think there, you know, obviously I'm sure you'd agree probably, right? That, I mean, there are things you can do with a, with a software programming skills that don't even approach um, the rigor of professional software engineering, but yet are extremely helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um... All right, good. And what's uh, what's the most? Uh, I mean, Python is considered to be like this sort of, you know, easy language in, in a sense of comparing it maybe to C plus plus. Maybe it's less, less rigoristic. It's closer in, in in syntactically maybe to English. Uh, but what would you say is the most difficult thing about learning Python? Uh, for me, the most difficult thing when I I started learning Python was not having any types. So the the two languages that I had really used a lot when I started learning Python were uh, C and Haskell, uh, which are both statically typed and Haskell is like aggressively typed and, and that's an, an extremely important part of the language and the way you think about solving problems. So then when I was, when I started learning Haskell, it was just, oh, this function takes a thing and you just kind of use it and, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And we'll find out at runtime. So just kind of learning to like not care about what something actually is and care more about how you use stuff was kind of a, a difficult transition. I, I felt that I felt like really lost when, when trying to navigate Python code bases in the beginning because I didn't understand. I didn't have all my types to, to guide me along and say like, oh, this feeds into this and this is just kind of like an overview of the whole system uh, I think that kind of contributes to why it's hard to like organize a large Python project because you don't have this system to guide you all right good and what about now 
I don't know if you've ever mentored anybody learning Python or, or learning software development in general, but what are some sort of things, uh, some sort of problems that, uh, that uh, people that are learning software development, that they often just, everybody's making the same mistake? Um, I don't know about software development in general, but I guess one kind of common beginner mistake for Python is to to try to like enforce types and try to because they're afraid to like embrace the dynamic typing you know writing a lot of you know assert that the type is a dictionary and make sure that you know everything kind of conforms to what they expect um, which is going to hurt them later when they're we're try, trying to write tests or um, or whatever and actually maybe if, if I think about software engineering in general, like tips or things that new people do, um, is not like s separating the stateful part of their programs or the I/O part of their programs from the pure part of their programs, uh, which again just makes things a nightmare to test later. You know, you end up with one one big black box that does everything, and then they either mock out the whole world or uh, just don't test it. <laughs> And what is the, like, I mean, are there people that just, they're learning the software development and they're at that point where they're able to write a bunch of lines of code and it does something, but they just can't get to that next stage of development as a software developer where they're actually able to break that code up into meaningful pieces. You know, for example, having functions just do one thing. Um, do you find that a lot of people get stuck in that place where they're able to create, you know, they're able to write line after line after line, but it's just not well written and they can't really refactor it properly? Um, I guess that it depends on like the environment you're in, right? Because if you are in a shop that, that just cares about like raw output of code and and you're just going to accrue technical debt until you're acquired um maybe like no one's saying that's wrong or that that's a bad thing to do right like that's that's actually in some cases like just writing the code once without really testing it or thinking about how to restructure the program is is what you're taught to do so um you know i've had friends who worked at, at shops like that and some of them in mind some of them really disliked it so i think uh that's kind of just an artifact of, of the environment that you're working in and as far as uh working as a software developer what what which languages are you using uh, in your actual job on a, on a regular basis so mo almost all of the code that i write day to day is in python and then there are pieces of it that are in c plus plus which i i do uh some frequency we also use a language very similar to Python called Cython, uh, which is uh, like a statically typed Python that compiles to C. And then also I do a little bit of C. Okay. All right. Good. And um, do you have uh, something that you shouldn't probably, like an example of a, a sort of project you shouldn't attempt with Python? It's just not the right thing to do. Um, so I, I, I think Python is, is a great general purpose programming language, like, I can't really think of anything where I would say, you know, Python is a is a bad language for that. The only thing I could maybe imagine is some embedded task, but there is MicroPython, which I just haven't explored that much. So I think Python is like loosely, or is like general purpose enough that you really could apply it to any task. 
And uh, what do you, I mean, just to throw this out there, this is one of the things we got, I wanted to kind of talk about is uh, uh, quantum computing is, is being developed. Uh, I think IBM has a 50 qubit quantum computer, perhaps. And just what do you, what do you think about quantum computing right now? How is it going to affect the, the software development industry? And just, uh, you know, just what is your opinion on this topic? Um, I'm not super uh, knowledgeable on topic. I haven't really followed quantum computing all that much. I've seen some early stuff about it, but f from what I gather, it's not going to be something that's really disrupting the industry in the next five, ten years, or maybe even more. So I, I just don't really know that much on the on the topic. No problem. All right. Uh, does uh, more processing power mean that I can be lazy with my code? Oh, this is a topic that, that frustrates me. Um, I think the answer is no. I, I think that's that's a problem that like a trap people fall into. Like, oh, computers are fast, so I can I can do dumb things. Uh, this is why some like loading a website is still like the user experience of computers is not really getting better or like faster, even though we have orders of magnitude more processing power. Uh, I think that you you still need to be concerned about performance. That said, you need to focus on the parts that are uh, actually important, like. I'm not saying you need to micro-optimize every line of code. Uh, you know, you can you can use dynamic interpreted languages, but you still need to think about performance. And, and being lazy is not the right way to think about it. Great. All right. Uh, now, uh, spreadsheets are like used by every company. Every business uses them. Even even professional developers might just fire up a quick Excel sheet or something. You just you know, crunch some numbers or whatever. Um, and there's a ton of data out there that's in Excel and in being that has all these like just bizarre macros and things like that. Could you try to bridge the, the gap between or that kind of that chasm between using Excel a lot, not writing even VBA, but just using Excel and write, writing tons of like nested functions and things with proper software development? So I haven't actually used Excel much. In my company, um, mostly people do their analyses in Python as well. Even people on um, like product teams and non-engineer staff. So we, we don't really, I think there might be some people that use Excel, but I don't really know much about it. Um, I guess really like writing a bunch of nested functions, Excel is, is just a big pure function, right? It's a functional programming language where you've got cells and, and functions on those cells. So that's kind of the mental model I would have if I had to approach it, but I uh, don't actually have much experience with Excel. Uh, that's probably actually really good news. I mean, uh, that's um, that's probably tells us a lot about where you work is that it's a little bit more progressive than other places where, you know, Excel is like the standard. Um, so that's awesome that you get to, you know, that you have coworkers that aren't even developers and are using Python instead of Excel. Awesome. Great. Good. Um, what is, uh, what's the most effective way to know you are Hiring or working with or talking to a skilled software engineer? What's the, the kind of the, the way they talk about software development or the things that they, the ideas they come up with or what's on their mind? Um, I think for me, it's if someone can like really talk uh, like deeply about a project for an extended period of time. Like they have, even it doesn't really matter what the subject is, what the project does, just if there's a project that someone like really knows all of or is really has like a truly deep understanding of um, maybe something they built, something they worked on at work or even like a 
what like a pro an open source project just having at least a project that they can really hold all of it in their head shows me that like you at least like can handle it or can do that for one project like you can probably do that again but uh, I find it like really hard in like an interview context to know if someone's ex like really experienced often I kind of just look at like their output like if they've done open source stuff that's for me the best indicator but I don't know if that's like could be gamed so I don't know if that really applies I mean, to hiring. Supposedly everything can be, I think, you know, people can fake GitHub probably contributions or maybe you can even buy people's profiles. I'm sure there's somebody creating, there are, I'm sure there's some developer out there creating like fake profiles to sell to people. And That seems kind of bold though because if, if you sold, like if you bought a GitHub account and like somehow did really well in an interview and you really just didn't know what you're doing, like you probably should have just spent that time like learning how to program, it would have been more productive. Uh, and then that person's going to be like, oh, pretty soon. So uh, I guess I wouldn't be that afraid of that or f like f that failure mode, but that's kind of what I would look for. Well, there is, it depends on the market you're in, but generally, you know, software developers are very well paid. And I could see that there's a lot of like this raw kind of passionate motivation, just like I have to get this job. And people are like, but you're not going to learn C++ in a weekend. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's I, I could see where there's a lot of maybe people that are, you know, if you take a normal anything that's not software development and maybe not medicine or anything like any nothing that's very specialized, uh, people are going to stretch a little bit on their resume. But I think in like software development, I think I see so for I'll give you an example. Like sometimes I, I will see someone say that they're an expert in like 15 languages. Oh, yeah. And like every framework and I'm like okay which one are you actually an expert in like give me one give me the best one give me the one that you are the best at you know I don't I don't want a laundry list yeah that's definitely I think one place where people stretch like they've read a blog post on Scala and then they put Scala on their resume uh, <laughs> one fun story actually was I was interviewing someone and they put on their resume uh, that they know a lot about monads and explain how to teach monads. So uh, in the interview, he said, can you teach us monads uh, and do it in Scala? And actually, pleasantly surprised, they did a great job. They did, I'm not a Scala expert, and they did a really great job like walking through how that works. So it was just kind of nice to spot check someone's resume like that and then have them be totally honest about it. So, um, but yeah, definitely that's something that I could see someone just throwing on the resume like, oh, that seems like a nice word to put on the resume and do you think i think i mean is there any merit to the, the this kind of idea that there's this uh, shortage of developers is it a shortage or is it just that companies are are you know they're not really they don't want to pay the market rate i think there's like a wide definition of what people are looking for right so i go to a bunch of meetup groups uh of different interests some are just general python a local c++ meetup a local uh, python for data science meetup and there's plenty of people there, and plenty of people there looking for jobs. So I don't know if I would say there's, like, a shortage, but I definitely see this, like, what skills are people looking for? Like, I do a lot of numerical computing, uh, which which is a very different skill set than someone who's looking for someone to do, like, uh, you know, scaling out a web server to serve hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Uh, so... I think that the term is just really general and so like the hit rate is low 
Like if I just say like, I need to hire a software engineer, like what does that actually mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's not something that's being resolved by anybody. It just seems like the method is sort of a shotgun approach where you just interview and screen as many well, people as possible, and then maybe you're going to land on that person that, that is a match. I actually think it's not just not being addressed. I think people are trying to address it, like a lot of like boot camps and like teach people to code initiatives are trying to address like a perceived shortage, but they're doing it by mostly producing web developers and people whose skill sets are things like Ruby on Rails or Node.js, which might not actually be the things that the companies need when they say they need a software engineer. Like they might need someone to build, maintain like an internal uh, portal for some like internal service that's not in Node.js and, and they just need, you know, someone to maintain some older system. Like they're not looking to build like the new startup thing. So, uh, you know, then you get this like big group of people who come in and they don't necessarily have the skills that the companies are looking for. So they say, oh, there's not enough people. We need more of those people. Uh, and then they train them on the wrong skills. And as far as people coming into a job, uh, how as a software developer, as a personal software developer, when you start a job, like how much of a ramp up time do you need? Like how long does it take before you actually understand the processes and procedures at a specific company? So I uh, I only have one experience with this. I've only worked professionally at a single company. So I guess caveat to everything I've said, like I only have one company's worth of experience. But I'd say it took me a couple months maybe even like a, a year to like understand like every part of the system. Like we, you know, all the different components and how they're talking to each other and kind of importantly, like understanding the interactions between the stuff that I didn't work on and the other stuff that I didn't work on. Like, you know, pretty quickly I, I couldn't, I could tell you how the stuff that I had built or worked on interacted with its direct neighbors, but knowing kind of the whole network um, probably took like a year. And is there something like, okay, so there's a lot of different languages you can learn, but would you say that there's sort of maybe one or two that if you, if you really did learn that language, like uh, to, a, to, a, to a level of being productive, that it would sort of empower you to l quickly learn any other language? I mean, I've, I've heard that said about very uh, difficult, I mean, so-called so difficult languages like C++ that people say essentially if you learn C++, then you can learn anything in like a week. Yeah, so I think the language I... I think is most foundational is C. C++, um, especially like the way I, I approach C++, which is like C++ 17 and like really it's very different from a lot of languages now. A lot of compile time evaluation and um, like templated containers and stuff, which not every language really has. I think if you can be like proficient in C or, or like be able to build even like a mod, you know, medium to small, like working, uh, program and see like that will help you so much because most programming concepts are just built off of the things in C. Like you're going to understand the memory model of most programming languages much better. If you understand how C works, you're going to understand performance characteristics of other programming languages. If you understand how C works, um, you're going to understand how to debug problems at the lowest level if you understand how C works because like some things sometimes we'll see you know engineers who really only know like a dynamic or an interpreted language and 
they don't really have any sense of like how it's implemented or how to understand the implementation of the language itself. And most of those interpreters are written in C or um, or C++. And I think C does set you up to understand C++, especially some of these um, larger interpreters, which are written in you know C++ 98. Uh, so if, if I had to pick one language, that's what it would be. All right, great. That's great. Yeah, I think that, that kind of information is really helpful for people that are kind of, they want to get into software development, but they just want to kind of ramp up as quickly as possible. I mean, it could be a year, it could be two years, it could be three years, but the point is they don't want to um, learn a language that's very specifically oriented towards one specific industry. You know, the, I think the best is to learn sort of something that is, like you just said with C, so uh, su such an integral part of a lot of different languages. I think one um, one thing that people defers or deters people from learning this is that they they might look and say, oh, well, no one's hiring me to, to write C, so maybe I shouldn't learn that. Maybe I should learn Python. Maybe I should learn uh, Ruby or Java or something else. But uh, so I, I wonder how how to communicate that to more people. Like, even though no one's going to hire you to write C, if you know C, you can learn the language they want to hire you to write. Well, I think part of that seems to be that. It's more like having maybe certain certain people in industry, or like maybe maybe recruiters or somebody, uh, understand that what's important is that ability to be able to learn C, for example, rather than that I do already know something, right? Yeah. So if I take someone who's an expert in C, and oh, but you don't know JavaScript, you know, I can give them two weeks, let's say, I don't know, even maybe less, and they could they could learn JavaScript. And the differences between JavaScript and C, and they would be they would be up and running. Um, actually, I might want to uh, make an amendment to my answer. So, I was thinking, like, would would someone really be able to pick up JavaScript in you know two weeks, given only C? I think maybe you need not just one, maybe not just C, but like C and Scheme, because the thing that I was thinking might really trip you up is like lexical closures. Uh, which is not something you encounter in C, which is in many modern languages like uh, JavaScript or, or Python, or like so that that's one thing. But I guess a C programmer could probably f be fine with that, be comfortable with that. It's like oh, it's a structure and it holds the arguments to pass to a function pointer. Like they could probably figure out how that works. But um, you know, maybe you just want a little bit of exposure to um, a higher level language as well. I think part of the, the conversation we're having is also along the uh, along the, the line of when people are looking for someone to hire to do, for example, machine learning, uh, they just generalize over a vast swath of people. If you have a physics degree, if you have a biology degree, just come on, we'll just teach you machine learning. So it's sort of like what they're saying there is if you have this background, it's not going to be a problem for you to adjust and, and be part of the team in a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't need you to know like whatever the machine learning framework is. You just need to know... That's, you need to have the skills to be able to learn whatever we're, we're using, which I, I totally agree with that. Right, exactly. Cool. All right, now um, reinventing the wheel is a topic uh, that a lot of, uh, especially uh, early on software developers deal with. Um, what's your kind of your, maybe your favorite, or your, your, your most interesting story involving where you just decided like to completely rebuild something instead of just using a library or, or a, a code that already existed? So I do this a lot, mostly for fun. Um, I think it's really important because if you rebuild the wheel, like you know how the wheel works. Um, you know, sometimes you've got some foundational thing and, and it's a black box to you and 
the best way to understand how it works is just to to try to build it yourself. Uh, like I kind of an early example when I when I was still in school, I I decided like I don't really understand how how virtual machines work, so I'm just gonna try to write one like a an interpreter virtual machine, not like a virtual box virtual machine. So I just kind of jumped in. I, I didn't really have any experience with that. I I read a couple articles on that and and just went and. I guess the important thing is, like, at no point did I expect this to be, like, the replacement for the JVM or, like, the new the new thing that should be used or that I would start using after that. But it was cool because I could build something and I knew what it was supposed to look like when I was done, uh, but I didn't know how to get there. And then I had to figure out all the, the things to do that. Um, and then I guess there, there are points at work when I'm uh, actually doing my job where sometimes I find it's more productive to build kind of a specialized implementation of some general thing instead of trying to fit the general thing to your problem. Like you can get really caught up trying to figure out how to take this like general library that does almost what you want or does it in a very general way and adapt it to your very particular problem. And sometimes like the faster solution or the more maintainable solution is just to say, you know, we're going to just write a specialized version of this algorithm for our problem that has like one domain aware feature, but that in the long run is going to be a lot easier to maintain. One thing that brings up uh, to mind is uh, when you're working with a language like Python, where there's so much already created, uh, so many tools and libraries and every, everything, you just plug them in, right? Uh, if you're learning Python, how do you, like at, w like, at what point is it okay to use like a ton of libraries in your program? Uh, you know, because you're obviously you're going to be missing out some of the learning if you're just importing everything. Yeah, that's a that's actually a good point. Um, I guess also a problem is when you're new, you don't know like which libraries are good. Like the, when you go on the Python package index, there's no like metric of like this is the good library for this task. You know, it could just be someone's like hobby project. Um, I've generally tried just to not use any third-party packages for learning like most of my side or like hobby projects use no third-party packages uh, python is a language where you can just do that um maybe though like even the, with the standard library i guess it depends on what you're trying to learn right if you're trying to learn about machine learning and you're going to write some small thing like it's probably okay to use the CSV library because like you don't really care to like write your own CSV parser that's uh, required to do what you want to learn but it's not what you're trying to learn right now so don't you don't need to like distract yourself by reinventing the whole world you just want to reinvent the piece that you're learning like if you were trying to learn how to write a machine learning model I, I would not advise that you use scikit-learn and say like oh well I'll just import it like that just sidesteps the whole goal of writing yourself but um you know, you can use, you know, the array library if you need that, or like NumPy or Pandas, if that's not like exactly what you're trying to do. Right. So essentially, identify the kind of the key focus of your development as a software developer, so your skill development, and then don't import that part. Right. Yeah. So, for example, if I if I want to work with natural language processing, I can just use. I I can feel safe in using a, for example, uh, the requests uh, uh, package. 
Yeah. I can use requests in Python because that's not what I'm focused on. I'm focused on the processing the data after I get it. So, you know, it's like that's that's a really great point, I think, especially for people that are that are learning either a new language or just learning a software development is uh, only write those things that are, are you're going to be focused on in that specific uh, exercise. Right. Because like, like you just said, a C, you don't need to recreate a CSV, uh, a way to import CSV files because. Maybe that that's just one of the little that's like a little tiny step of what you're trying to do. Yeah. And maybe you're even comfortable with with um, with working with files and different things. But like this, you just need to use a CSV file in this project. Right. So I think that's really important too. like you don't want to you don't want to go crazy and just rebuild everything because then you're probably going to be wasting a lot of time. Yeah. I don't have a great rule for knowing like what to or how to know what to include. But I do know that you, you will know when you do it wrong, because if you look at your file, and you haven't really written any novel code, you know, you'll know, oh, maybe I need to re-implement re some of these. And that's okay. Like, if you, you say, like, oh, I, well, I was importing this thing, maybe I need to just write it myself um, instead. All right, good, good. Uh, great. Uh, now, like, uh, I don't know if this is really makes any sense, but it's like, what's a software engineering myth that you think is, like, needs to die today? Like, what, what is something you've heard either people that aren't software developers or people that are software developers, but they're just passing this myth around. Um, I don't know if this is a myth. I think this may be like misattribute, misattributing uh, a quote is like uh, premature optimization is the, what is it? Premature optimization is the root of all evil. Um, I think kind of going back to the earlier question, talking about do faster computers make it okay to be lazy? Like, Sometimes people will use that quote as an excuse to not even think about the runtime of their their of the code they're writing. So, you know, kind of a a thought that I have is that if you write a function and you you make a publicly available function in a library or in a, an internal library even, then that should be a pretty good, if not the best, way to solve whatever that function is doing. So. Like when people just kind of throw together some like super naive implementation, they don't even consider what the runtime would be, and then in code review they're like, "Well, I didn't, I, you know, I'm not going to optimize it because I haven't profiled it yet to to know that that's the bottleneck in the application." The the kind of problem with that is that by making this publicly available function, a, a future developer is going to come along and they'll say, "Oh, someone already abstracted this away. Why would they have abstracted it away in a way that is publicly available and?" In, you know, documented if it's not a good implementation or solution to that problem. And then now code that was, was not on the critical path is on the critical paths. And as you have to go back and profile it a year later and say, oh, that was not the best way to do it. So kind of just like spend a little bit of time as you're writing code, every time you're writing code, thinking about what's the runtime characteristics of this code. Not like go through and you know, profile every single instruction the compiler emits, but just consider what the runtime will be. And and if, you know, it's a super naive uh, implementation, you know, maybe document that. Uh, you know, there are definitely cases where we have written functions that are are not going to be that fast. And I've just put in the documentation, like, this is for debugging, or this is, uh, you know, don't feed this an array of greater than some length because it's going to be really slow. But... Yeah, people just kind of use that, fall into this trap of like, I don't need to optimize anything ever.
Yeah, and it, it's like uh, I, I've heard that people are either, you know, they're over-optimizing or they're not optimizing anything. So I don't know why for some reason people go to those extremes. Maybe it's just a, it's a lack of maybe wisdom as a developer. Yeah, I, I think part of it is like understanding, having like the understanding of the whole system to know like maybe this code will never be in the critical path or like it's, it's not that important um, or like understanding kind of how it adds up like one thing is like you write some code and it's kind of slow and it's like fine for whatever you're solving now but like in the context of the whole system that's like unacceptable like you know maybe it's called once in the part that you're working on but that part is called a million times so you don't want it to blow up uh, i find this actually especially troublesome in my field which with when you're working with a lot of data because you know people will write a test or, or try it out on like five rows and then they feed it like you know a year's worth of pricing data for every asset and then it just blows up and it takes like five seconds and you know you can't use that code then i know there was uh recently i was working on uh just like a toy project of uh trying to generate every possible image and uh it, w it worked as long as your grid is like you know three by three yeah four by four and for some reason when you go from four by four to five by five it's like the amount uh, the amount of possibilities just explodes and you're going from like 65,000 images to like, I forgot how many million or whatever it is. So um, I, I think that's sort of interesting that I, I, developers or people that are learning software development should probably try to tackle some maybe even impossible problems just to see sort of what happens when you like uh, in my example where you're going just from a what you think is just one one more you know, pixel in a row, right? Just four, four by four by uh, to five by five. But then it turns out it's like a completely uh, different, you know, like 10 times, uh, 10 times, uh, 10 uh, power of magnet uh, powers uh, higher than what you're working with originally. Yeah. So, and, and like you said, with the example of a, a function running a million times. So what do you, what do you do if you, if you are run, if you're in charge of a system of a whole system, how do you refactor it in a way that you get rid of all of those little tiny problems that end up going out of control when it scales up that is a great question um so i think if i was like look trying to kind of optimize the whole system like i like i guess you can't prevent that f from happening as a refactor like you can't just go fix all those little efficiencies as a refactoring step i think like the the first guard against that is having good code review process in place you know making sure people are reviewing these functions that are going to be used and say like you know people who maybe understand the consumers of the of the whole code that's being written and say hey like we need this can't be as inefficient as it is or we need to tweak this um if you kind of already have something with a bunch of these little inefficiencies uh, if they're truly littered throughout your code base, I don't know how I'd begin to approach that problem. I guess in general, if you're trying to optimize an entire system, the, the first step is just to try to do less stuff, like run less code. So even if it's not that efficient, figure out ways to, you know, only conditionally execute code or uh, cache things, things like that. So that's probably how I would attempt to, to solve that problem. Any any uh, any way microservices uh, you know versus monolithic systems is there is there a way that uh, just that sort of thinking about breaking things up into into pieces input and output you know kind of separated out blocks of activity on a server so instead of like you said like building one giant system 
just have these little uh, microservices. I mean, have you have you used microservices? What do you? Yes. What, what's your? So we've um we've got a few like small services. Our main application is kind of a monolith. Um, so I'm kind of torn on the idea of microservices. On the one hand, I really like that it encourages developers to think a lot about interfaces. Like, what is the contract of the component that I'm building? Because, you know, people can't just grab your internal functions. You really have to make sure that your API is, is good and, and well-documented and abstract enough that you can change the implementation later. Uh, the downside, I think, is that it makes it really hard for people to understand, like, kind of the downstream effects of their changes, right? Like, if I'm a maintainer of some small microservice and I make it, uh, you know, point, you know, like one millisecond slower per call, you know, that might seem like an acceptable thing to my team or to me because I don't realize that someone needs this a lot. Um, one of the reasons we don't really use microservices a lot at, in the main application I work on is because uh, it's doing like financial simulations where we're not going to make a web request in the middle of a simulation. Uh, that's kind of like an unacceptable slowdown. But the thinking of like how to structure the the program as little components definitely um, is kind of how we how we think about building the system, even if it's not what most people would call like a microservice architecture. Okay. Uh, how do you explain the job of software engineering to someone who is not a software engineer, is not technical? What do you what do you tell them? Um, mostly tell them that I I use computers to to solve problems, I guess because the details of it are not super important. Like, if you if you ask me, like, what I'm paid to do, it's, well, really, it's just to solve problems, and then using a computer just happens to be the accepted way to solve those kinds of problems. Um, I, I think you wouldn't want to bog people down in, like, the frameworks and languages and stuff. If they're not a technical person, that stuff does not matter to them. The, the main takeaway is just you solve problems with computers. Uh, and maybe. Do you think it's fair? Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say maybe you know explain what kind of problems you're solving, like because those can be wildly different depending on what kind of uh, company you work for. Have you ever uh, met any developers in your career that um, say that they are terrible at math, but they're excellent developers? Is there is there math software development connection? Um. Yeah. I mean, I it, I guess it depends on like what they mean when they say they're they're terrible at at math. Uh, I think that it's important to like think analytically about stuff, but I don't know if you need to like know a lot of like high level math to be productive as a software engineer. Uh, it kind of helps if you're thinking about performance, like if you were doing numeric computing, knowing identities and um, kind of like properties of math that allow you to express your algorithms more efficiently is nice. Uh, but most software engineers don't need to like prove the upper bound or like the worst case scenario runtimes of their programs or, or write, you know, formal proofs of anything really in their programs. So you don't necessarily need to have like a super formal education in math to be productive in software engineering. Or I, I think at least. Okay, great. That'll make a lot of a lot of people that are listening very happy. Um, do most developers fail to grasp the power of databases? Now, this question is kind of uh, I, I I interviewed an SQL developer, uh, and he essentially was saying that you know from his perspective, on the database side, um, a lot of people that are doing for for example web development, they're sort of not really 
taking databases seriously? And do you see any pattern of, of behavior that's similar to that among software developers where they're treating a database as, as just anything else, that you, any other tool that you would just connect to your, to your, to your solution? Um, I think so. I, I mean, I think a lot of people use it as just like, I'm going to throw stuff in there and I can get all of it back out later, um, depending on your problem. And then they, they, the tool they know is Python or, or Ruby or whatever, or Java. And so all of the actual interesting logic will happen there. Uh, I think I'm also kind of guilty of this. I, I don't really use a lot of fancy database features a lot of the time. Uh, though I think that like one way to make it easier is to use like good tools like uh, in Python, like SQL Alchemy lets you write what looks like Python and kind of feels like Python, but then it's going to leverage the database to actually execute your code. Um, an open source project I maintain uh, is called Blaze, which is basically like Panda's uh, expressions uh, for Python data science, which compile into different backends uh, to be executed, and one of the backends is SQL. So you write what looks like a pandas expression, which is like the thing you're comfortable with, and it compiles to SQL and actually runs. Um, but yeah, I guess that's great. That's a great idea. I mean, that, you know, you don't have to learn SQL. That's great. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say you don't need to learn SQL because um, I kind of feel like any tool that's an abstraction on top of something, like you might want to learn the underlying, especially when it's new or like kind of, exp I guess I shouldn't say Blaze is experimental. It's, it's certainly production software, but, um, you know, it does have some sharp edges and it is nice to be able to say, well, what query did I actually run? Uh, you know, not, you don't have to think about it while you're writing it, but you should maybe be able to understand it when you're done. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess the, the main failure mode is I see people just use it like in the same way they would use a, a CSV. Like, I'm going to store an entire record and I'm going to pull back everything or maybe just like a few rows of it, but then any complex logic is going to happen in Python or in, in their language of choice. Is it, uh, is it just that uh, there's something about SQL? I mean, I've tried to learn it multiple times, like to a, to, I mean, to a proficiency level, not just to, you know, ba basics. Um, but it's so much, I just prefer to just do something in Python. What is it about SQL in your opinion or SQL in your opinion that, uh, that kind of puts people off? Um, one, the language is really weird. Like all the multi word keywords and stuff, I think it's just like uncomfortable. Also the stream programming model is kind of different for people. Um, interestingly, I guess like the, like NumPy and Pandas, like libraries have kind of introduced more people to the idea of like vector operations instead of scalar operations in loops. So, but th you know, that puts a lot of people off early on as well, but they kind of can more quickly see the benefits of it. So maybe the fact that the programming model is built around like vector operations and set operation, well, more like set operations than uh, scalar operations and uh, explicit iteration makes it harder for people to understand like, well, is this a scalar operation? Is this a, is this a table? Is this a column? Like what, where, what is anything? Uh, and then also, I think one thing that makes it really hard to learn is all the different dialects. Like, I use Postgres, and I use a lot of the cool Postgres features, but I could not use those on uh, in MariaDB, for example. So now, like, a lot of the cool things that I know and have learned about Postgres don't really transfer. So it feels 
like kind of specialized knowledge. It almost feels like, you know, really diving deep on something which might not apply everywhere. But if you learned how to do it efficiently in Python, that's that's going to apply no matter what your database is. Actually, and then maybe a, a final thing of like why people don't use it that well in uh, web applications or in, in smaller places is that if you don't have that much data, you're not going to really see a benefit. Like if you can fetch the entire table in memory and like less than a second, I don't know how much benefit you're going to see by pushing all your queries into the database. So right. then that's kind of the mental model you have is like when you're learning and you don't have much data, you don't see much benefit by using the database. It's harder to learn. And then even when you do it, it's not faster. So you're like, well, I'll just do it the way I know. And then now you have like a billion rows and that's not true anymore, but your program's already written. So now it's just going to be slow. Would you say that the, I mean, it seems like what we're getting to here is that a, a, the difference between a, a junior developer and a senior developer is that a senior developer knows how to make all the right decisions before they even start the project. I th yeah, I don't know if I would say all the right decisions. Right, I, I mean, I'm over, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm making it a little too grandiose, but, but generally that they, they understand I think it's, uh, kind of going out the gate, which database to use, how they're going to implement it, and all this other stuff. I think the more important distinction is they understand the scale of the inputs better so like i guess the kind of trend in the failure mode i've been describing is you know you write a function and and you you test it on 10 a 10 length 10 array but in production it's going to see length you know 10,000 arrays or you write some code and you run it against a table with 100 rows and in production you have a billion rows so it's more like just understanding the scale of the the data even if that's not there yet like if you're building something new, like how big are those arrays going to be? You might not actually know the answer. You might not be able to go find that out, but you have a sense of what that's going to be or, or what this can handle and if that's okay. Have you ever, have you ever looked at a project or, or, or spoken with someone who they're just, they're just doing completely the wrong thing? So, for example, you look at their code and you say, okay, why, why do you have any of this? This could just be all, for example, li uh, list comprehension in Python. Um, I've seen. Uh, I think I mentioned to you in this in this the list of questions I sent you. Uh, Raymond Hedinger was doing a talk, and he I think he it was either two hundred or two thousand lines, but he reduced this whole program to like twenty lines uh, just by using you know kind of a, 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 a more intelligent approach when when writing Python. So I guess you have do you have any stories about where you looked at a code base and just kind of sort of maybe intuitively quickly resolved a major flaw? Um, I don't have anything that comes to mind. That is a great talk, though. Uh, where, because the interesting thing about that is that it's it's not just about like getting your style checker to pass. It's about thinking about the problem with the Python style in mind. Um, I don't have like a great war story of of a beautiful refactor in that way, but uh, in general, that is one of the big comments in code reviews, at least where I work, is you know. Small, like little refactors along the way. Um, so I guess one reason I, I don't have a big war story on that is I'd say our code base is pretty good. Um, you know, not perfect, but, you know, because everyone's making, you know, small style suggestions along the way, there's no point where we run into this, like, huge, you know, file of just completely um, misformatted or, like, unpythonic code.
right. Uh, uh, what, what, um, if we are talking about kind of how technology is developing and how we're moving, you've, you've heard obviously of AI and automation and things like that. Um, as a professional software developer, do you see any of your tasks being automated or replaced away uh, from what you were maybe doing like a couple of years ago? I mean, is there any, is there sort of a trend of more and more of the things you're doing as a developer being automated or is, is nothing being automated in, in software development? Um, this is an interesting question. I, I feel like it seems like it should be, but in practice, like hasn't like there's definitely more automated assistance, but nothing that can act on those decisions. Like there are style checkers, but nothing that can go actually apply the changes in a way that people want to see. I mean, there's clearly like auto format tools, but I don't think people, I mean, some people use them, but you know, like kind of that, that talks shows like just getting the style checker to pass is not the point. It's thinking about the problem correctly. And there's definitely no tools I know of that do that. Um, I mean, I haven't really seen anything that can take like problem specs and produce working programs that can be deployed. So, or even not even be deployed, just produce working programs from it. So, like into there are some attempts. I remember there was someone using, I think, genetic algorithms to try to do that, where they just, you know, the, the using um, using a very simple programming language. They essentially just ran like billions and billions of uh, of iterations until the they they you know came up. It actually generated something that made sense. You know, they came up with the correct output. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. Uh, so I mean, I mean uh, actually, I have seen another project that I, is sort of similar. It, it, the genetic algorithms thing reminded me. It's called uh, Stoke. It was a research project that is a uh, x86 hyper optimizer. So its input is x86 assembly, and it outputs x86 assembly, which is functionally equivalent through the the rules of the the mnemonics in in x86. And the idea is using genetic algorithms to search the space of all possible instructions to optimize um, like a single function to be as, as efficient as possible on x86, um, which the results showed pretty good uh, outputs compared to like expert optim like hand optimized functions. So I guess it's like crept into like, like well-defined problems, but I think, the primary job of a software engineer is taking a poorly defined problem and making it a well-defined problem. Like, I don't think most of the difficulty of software engineering, once you like actually learn how to program or like the mechanics of programming, that's not where you spend your time. You're not thinking about like, how do I input this code? How do I write this particular function? The hard part is saying, what is the function that must be written? What is the actual uh, definition of the problem because that's kind of what you have to figure out. So I see tools being used to assist people in implementing the solution, but I, I don't think there's been anything really in like the fundamental job of the software engineer, which is to define the problem and then, and then implement it. The first step I, I don't see being automated away anytime soon. Okay, great. So it's interesting that the people, I mean, the people that are the closest to artificial intelligence are the most uh, kind of protected from being uh, automated away. 
Uh, okay, good, 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 very good. Um, this is uh, kind of a silly question to kind of, we got five more minutes. Um, if I paid you twice as much money as uh, you earn right now to write just VBA all day, would you do it? Um, well, I've never really written any VBA, so I don't know if I've got a, like a strong negative connotation like most people, but uh, because you're asking this question, I'm going <laughs> to say no, because it seems like it's probably an unpleasant language for again. Um, I, I definitely find that Python is a fun language, and that definitely contributes to the fact that I've been working where I am for as long as I have. Um, I, I find just programming to be fun, uh, and I, I think it's a beautiful thing that I've found a, a career that is both uh, it's also entertaining to me, and uh, and I get paid to do it. So, like, I would be willing to take less if it meant I could still enjoy the job that I do. Definitely. I mean, I'm sure there's some COBOL programmers that would be more than more than happy to do VBA. Uh, okay. Uh, now, this is kind of a question I've been thinking about for a while. I've talked to different developers over the over, over the year here. Um, do, do most small and medium businesses, in your opinion, in the U.S. Uh, or other countries, properly implement software solutions, or are they even using software in the right way? Are there, you know, what, what do you see, what kind of mistakes do you see businesses making as far as the decision to even create software or use software. So do you mean like not startups or technical startups? Do you mean like... Not technical startups. I mean non... Like just business, just uh, not, uh, not startups, but small businesses. Yeah, right? okay. So uh, I, I have a whatever, a shoe store, whatever else, right? Um, not a shoe store, but maybe something... Some, like let's say a non-startup that has like 50 to 100 employees, right? Yeah, well, um, I would definitely assume you should not be implementing your own software solutions if that's not your core business. I, I think in general, it's very rare to see non-technical companies come up with really interesting and like good technical solutions to problems uh, unless they're at huge scale. Like Clearly, like Walmart's technical department is going to be pretty good, even though that's not their core business, just because they're a huge business. But um, like I'd say focus on the thing you know how to do and, and outsource a technical solution. You know, I've seen a lot of restaurants using, um, you know, things like Grubhub or other um, meal delivery things instead of trying to build their own website for taking deliveries. And in the end, like, they're going to get more business because the site's just going to work better because that's the only thing that Grubhub is focused on. And the thing the restaurant's focused on is, like, making food, not the rest of, like, how to write a website. Right, definitely. I definitely agree. Okay, good. All right. So as we're as we're wrapping up here, I want to know, Joe, is there anything that you're working on? Is there a book you're writing? Is there what's going on right now that you're really excited about? You want to let our listeners know. Um, the thing I've been working on most recently is uh, giving a presentation at PyData in New York City uh, in two weeks on using neural networks for time series prediction. So that's that's something that I, I've been working on lately. Uh, not writing a book. It sounds like a lot of work, a lot of writing. Um, and yeah, I don't know if there's any big projects really that I've been working on outside of work that I want to chat about. But yeah, that's the thing I've been spending most of my time on. Okay, and people, I understand. I'm, I'm going to post a link to your Twitter profile. If there's any other any other resources you want me to link to, just let me know. And um, I guess, yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. I don't have any other questions I, I could throw at you. Uh, one thing I just did want to touch uh, touch base on was um, I think that software development is kind of starting to 
you know, not starting to, it's really part of everybody's lives. Uh, and, and as you said at the beginning, not everybody needs to learn software development or be a professional engineer, but definitely they should have some kind of digital literacy and understand what the, what the questions are that are being raised and what the background is. Um, for the last question, I just want to ask you, uh, what, what, uh, what do you think the, the, the world will look like in 10 or 15 years as far as the world of work? I mean, how much, how much, uh, how much are computers going to be, you know, taking over a lot of the jobs of, of regular people of not, not developers, not technical people, but what, how do you see that happening, panning out? Um, I really, I don't know if I can answer that. So I, I've only worked well, I, I worked as a dishwasher, uh, and then other than that, really, I've only worked at a technical startup. So for me, like computers are 100% of what I do, and, and even for the non-engineers at my job, you know, people are using Python to do like A-B testing and or understand the results of their tests and, and to do site analytics, and, you know, everyone is, you know, using code at least in some way to do something, um, so I, I don't know really how that's going to creep in to affect other jobs, uh, which are maybe less, uh, where there may be like a less direct path to using a computer to solve your problem. I'm not sure how computers are going to affect that. We're also in, in companies or industries where you mentioned restaurants, you know, where those, those, there's really nothing that, you know, they're not writing their own software, they're just using the tools, so really that it wouldn't help them to know some sort of program language or something like that. So I think there's certain uh, roles and in industries that knowing more technical skills is not going to help them in any way. It, well, just maybe even... so the only thing there I could imagine is, you know, if you knew how to write some code, how to, you, you might be able to use that for accounting or logistics uh, you know to run some scripts to output like what's my projection for how much food I need and maybe or like uh, ingredients I need to order and maybe it's not knowing how to do it but just knowing that that's a possibility and finding someone to do that like knowing that you can write code to do forecasting on how much food you need and that like that's not some far-fetched problem like that's a very real thing that's that's completely implementable um, and maybe having a sense of what that would look like so that you can evaluate whether someone's done it correctly I guess um, it would be good so that, that might be one place like but you know again I don't think like uh, technical skills are gonna like change if you're a chef like your job's not really going to change all that much. Joe, I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, I hope you had a good time. And uh, if you want to uh, obviously suggest anyone else for the podcast, let me know. Yeah.